Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin today's program, I again want to thank some of our fellow saloners who either have bought a copy of my Pay What You Can novel, The Genesis Generation, or who have made direct donations to the salon, because all of those funds are going into the same pot. And uh, to give you a little idea of what uh, some of those donations are going to be used for, besides uh, paying for hosting fees and bandwidth, I should probably give you a little preview of our long-range plans. And I'll have more details about this later, but uh, for the year 2012, Bruce Damer and I are planning on presenting a series of workshops that we hope to be able to do without charging admission. Uh, while there may be one or two venues that we can't afford uh, on our own, for the most part, we hope to be able to do them for free uh, for anybody who can get there. And uh, to support this rather ambitious project, I've been setting aside part of all the book sales and donations that have been coming in this year. Now, the only date that is for sure right now is that we're going to revive the Palenque Norte Plyologues at the 2012 Burning Man Festival. As you may know, I retired the Palenque Norte Lecture Series after the 2007 festival, mainly because uh, I'd become a little burned out, uh, pun intended by the way, <laughs> and most of the people who participated in those events uh, haven't made it back to the playa since then either. But hey, it's, uh, it's going to be 2012, and uh, I'll also be celebrating my 70th birthday in August of that year, so we're better to uh, celebrate it than at Burning Man, where I also celebrated my 60th birthday, I guess I should add. Anyway, I realize that 2012 is still a long way off, but to be honest, it's really expensive to go to Burning Man, and so it's going to take a year of savings to uh, get there and to also be able to produce several other workshops during that year as well. And without the wonderful support that we've been getting, I wouldn't be able to commit to a somewhat, uh, well, at least for me, aggressive schedule in 2012. And this week, those wonderful souls who are helping this cause along are David N., Mika C., Chris B., Carol J., Murray G., Gerard D., Nigel B., Darren M., Tim H., Christopher H., Bart V., and Josh B., uh, who made a seriously substantial donation that I really appreciate, Josh. Uh, and I'm sure that Josh would join me in saying that it isn't the amount, but the thought that's so important. Uh, for example, uh, one of our donors this week is a student who uh, actually apologized for sending what they thought was a small donation. But hey, there's uh, no such thing as a small donation. Just like telling a friend about the salon or passing along a copy of today's podcast to some friends uh, who could use the information, well, those are also equally important donations to the cause that uh, we're all involved in, and that's getting this information out to as many people as we can. You know, we're all in this together, and so the more people who at least understand where we're coming from, I think uh, the better off we're all going to be. So uh, thank you one and all for your support in so many different ways. Now uh, let's get on with the show, as they say. Well, I've got something a little different for you today, and hopefully this is information that you'll never need, <laughs> as strange as that sounds. But in the unhappy circumstance where you wind up on the wrong side of the uh, fanatical anti-drug warriors in their war against people who prefer to use non-prescription medicines, uh, cannabis in particular, well then this could be some, uh, some of the most important information you're ever going to hear. As uh, you're going to hear in just a minute, uh, I have asked our resident ayahuasca expert, Matt Palomary, to serve as our guest host today and interview Eric Hart, who's a practicing attorney in San Diego, California. Now, while I'm a lawyer myself, I haven't practiced since the late 1970s when I was uh, part of the firm of Mackinich & Haggerty in Houston, Texas. And while I still am licensed to practice law in Texas, uh, I haven't kept up with the many changes in the law that are always taking place, so I've held back in offering any legal advice in these podcasts just to uh, be sure that I'm not putting out bad information. 
And so when Matt offered to interview his friend Eric for a podcast, I jumped at the chance because if you just walked into a lawyer's office and asked all of the questions that Matt asks Eric in this podcast, uh, it'd probably cost you at least $200, if not more. And to my mind, there's nobody better suited to ask these questions for you and me than Matt Palomary, who is as street smart a guy as there is. And if you don't believe that statement, you ought to pick up a copy of his autobiography, Spirit Matters, and you'll see what I mean. Also, uh, you can hear some of Matt's advice on ayahuasca and other matters uh, in podcasts number 80, 89, 132, and 182. So now let's join Matt Palomary for his interview of Eric Hart, lawyer and author of the book, Lawyers Lie, which you have to admit is one of the catchiest titles on Amazon, don't you think? Hello out there, Solanos. It's Mateo here, and I've... uh been asked as an honor to be a guest host on the salon for this podcast. So today I have a special guest, which uh, I think you'll find interesting. Uh, I want to start out by saying hello to some of my friends out there. Uh, Hi to KMO and to Cody and Sancho, Blacklight in the Attic, and to uh, Brother Birdwing Butterfly down under in Australia, and to Adrian in Romania and Camino Sagrado, and the rest of you uh, brothers and sisters who have been in touch and listening to the podcast, we really appreciate you listening, and we really appreciate the support that you get. So uh, today, as I said, I have a special guest. It's a very good, long-standing friend of mine. His name is Eric Hart, and he is uh, an attorney, and he's a very special attorney. Because he hates attorneys, and he's a uh, he's been defined as a barbarian, which I can totally relate to. Now, Eric has written a really great book. It's called Lawyers Lie, and uh, he's been an attorney in San Diego since 1976, and he's practiced in a wide variety of legal fields. Uh, he was also a private investigator for a number of years, and. Um, Lawyer is a lie. I'll have him say more about it here in a minute. But um, we're going to be focusing on legalities, specifically uh, criminal legalities, um, and a lot around marijuana because we're here in California, and um, a lot of what we're doing here in California is kind of the world is watching, I guess is one way of putting it. So um, we're going to talk about marijuana law a bit and uh criminal law a bit, as they're unfortunately related, and um, even though it's an international audience, uh, we'll kind of work our way around things and some some things that I think are important uh, for you to know. So um, I want to just say a bit about uh, his book, Lawyers Lie, Uh, and before I do, I want to say that I've known Eric for, I think, maybe 23 years something like that. We were in writing workshops together, and he's been working on a lot of uh, criminal-type stories and things, Uh, a lot of fiction, some nonfiction. And he's been so fed up with the legal system. Um, He's one of the good guys. That's why he's fed up with it. He's he's one of the guys that wears a, a white hat, and he's helped out myself and a number of friends with different legal issues. So uh, the thing that struck me about Lawyer's Lie is uh, that you can look through and have a sort of a legal issue, the day-to-day legal issues. It's really, even though the title is Lawyer's Lie, it's really sort of more of a consumer's guide um, to the legal system. And um, you could look up, for argument's sake, you're going to go into small claims court or arbitration. You could go to a chapter and find out about it. So it's a really great reference book to have, and I highly recommend it. And there will be information on how to purchase it. Um, it's available on Amazon Kindle, and it's also available on www.ericdhart.com, ericdhart.com. So I'm really honored to have Eric here today, and now uh, we're going to pick his brain and see what he's got to say. So uh, thank you, Eric, for coming on the show. And... Um, I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you is uh, you've done a lot of different things in in the legal field, both as a uh, private investigator, as a criminal investigator, 
and uh, you have a lot of expertise in different areas. So if you could, in your own words, tell us uh, where, where you define your areas of expertise. Well, thanks, uh, Matt, for having me on, and uh, hello to everybody out there. Um, I would say my major expertise is a focus on how the legal, assist, the legal system uh, has a bearing on consumers and consumer rights. It's almost a class struggle uh, for consumers to find access to uh, the legal system and lawyers, and that fascinates me. And so I've done quite a bit of study uh, in both the, the civil justice system and the criminal justice system. Good. Um, I want to get into some nitty-gritty here because we're going to talk about marijuana law and a lot of uh, California marijuana law. So I'm going to just run a few scenarios by you and get your gut response uh, <laughs> For starters, uh, I know some people who were growers in California, and they had their uh, medical marijuana cards, and they had uh, what's been called uh, a caretaker's license, and so they could join together as a co-op, and uh, four people got together and they had this caretaker's license, so if I remember correctly, uh, they could grow up to 99 plants. Uh, legally under California marijuana law, which is what they were doing. And they got their plants in, and they were really starting to grow very nicely. And then uh, one of them woke up. He woke up to an M16 pressed to the side of his head. So I'm curious if you could give us advice. If anybody were to find themselves in that situation, what's the way to go? Well, you say he woke up. Uh, did the uh, Were they cops who entered his house? Uh, do you know any more facts about how the gun ended up aimed at them? Yeah, they, they were cops. They were like SWAT team kind of guys, and they were all dressed in black, and they were like paramilitary bozos. <laughs> okay, well, they must have had a warrant, I'm assuming. If they, don't, if they don't have a warrant, then they would have no right to enter the house unless uh, there was consent given by him, which obviously didn't occur if he was uh, sleeping, or if there were exigent circumstances uh, that means, uh, uh, like, if a cop's pursuing a fleeing felon into a house, they have a right to go in that the house to, in, in that circumstance, without a warrant. Also, they have the right to go into a house if evidence is being destroyed. So, barring all that, they must have had a warrant that allowed them to break into the house, and it sounds like it was a warrant for his arrest. Yeah, okay. I don't remember the specifics, but I don't know if it makes a difference or not, but uh, he was not the owner of the house. He was leasing it. So could it have been possibly done with the landlord's consent or something, or uh, is that really an issue? Uh, no, the landlord uh, can only give consent if he's an actual resident of the house. Just because a landlord is, if a landlord is renting uh, premises to somebody, the landlord has no right to give consent just because the landlord owns the house. Only the own, only the resident of a house would have that right. Okay. Um, I think they just popped in on them, but, you know, you can have six cops and two hippies, and who are they going to believe? And they're going to say what they think. They could say they thought they saw him with a gun or something crazy anyway, right? Well, uh, no, not really. I mean, it, it's an. it wouldn't surprise me if they entered the house without a warrant, in which case uh, there are certain things that a person should do when that happens. Uh, when, the, when the police violate your rights, number one, cooperate. Because if they're violating your rights, there's something wrong with their mentality at that point in time, and, it, and they may end up shooting you. So even if, especially if you're right and you're innocent and you've done nothing wrong, by all means, always cooperate with the police. Uh, and if you don't cooperate, they'll end up adding charges such as resisting arrest and obstructing justice anyway, and you'll get hurt. They'll beat you up. So after that, you cooperate with them. Next important thing, never say a word. Don't ever talk to the cops under any circumstance. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a suspect or you're being arrested, nothing can be gained from it. Uh, they will twist whatever you say. It can only be used against you, just like the famous Miranda advisement. 
you have a right to remain silent, so remain silent. Even if they're yelling and screaming at you to talk, refuse to talk. That's, that's a basic right that you have. Uh, it's one of the only effective rights we have left from the Bill of Rights. So exercise that right or else whatever you say will be twisted around and it'll end up leading to your conviction. Good, yeah, that, thank you. That's, that's good advice. I, I'm going to say a, a short little uh, story from my own younger life when I was a teenager. I got arrested with some friends. Uh, one of my friends did something stupid. He, he broke a fire alarm and set it off, and they came and got us all. And um, they had, they have like uh, glow-in-the-dark stuff they put on the fire alarm thing, and it you know it shows up under a black light. And he had been messing with it with a stick, and he threw it at me, and the stick hit me, and it got on my clothes. So they were blaming me for it. And he did it, but I wasn't going to snitch him off. So they got me in a corner, and they said, okay, we already know the whole story. We know who did it. We know what happened. So why don't you tell us your side of the story? And I said, well, you already know everything, so I got nothing to say. And they got really pissed off because they didn't. They were trying to get me to give it up. So uh, I'm telling that to reiterate what Eric said about keep your mouth shut because... Uh, they'll lie. They'll twist it. They'll they'll they'll, they'll do whatever they can. So, um, in in terms of uh, the medical marijuana law, let's get into that issue a little bit in California because we were talking about this, and um, you had in essence said, and you can correct me with, with your own wording, but you were in essence were saying that Proposition two fifteen, yes, uh, which was was it in ninety six, yes, nineteen I- yeah nineteen ninety six, didn't really have enough teeth in it. I guess is the way you worded it. So why don't you elaborate on that a little bit? Okay, uh, yes, in 1996, uh, the California voters, by a wide margin, uh, approved medical marijuana in uh, this proposition. And everyone felt, okay, uh, the state is in favor. The state now has to uh, effectively allow medical marijuana dispensaries uh, so that people who are ill uh, or in bad health can... uh, get a marijuana card and then receive marijuana. Well, you know, the problem with the law, the problem with a proposition like that is it had no teeth as to how uh, the marijuana laws and regulations would uh, come into play. Um, For instance, what's happened since is that uh, 12 of the 58 counties in uh, California have outright banned uh, medical marijuana and medical marijuana dispensaries. And you might ask, well, how could they get away with doing that? If you had a proposition that said, hey, it's the law that you can. Well, um, a lot of these counties and uh, prosecutors, they're going by the federal law. The federal law does indeed um, say that nobody can have marijuana. That's a federal crime. And to support their argument, they say that the federal law uh, preempts state law, which is a basic uh, uh, rule of law in almost any country throughout the world. You know, the national or federal uh, laws in government are stronger than and um, are more powerful than the state laws. So on the basis of that, some counties have outright banned the use of medical marijuana dispensaries. But when they did that, it invited um, lawsuits, uh, obvious lawsuits saying that Proposition 215 is still the law and that they can't do that. So a lot of counties countered that by coming up with a different alternative, um, a malleable alternative. They didn't ban medical marijuana, but they decided to regulate it. And that's what's the current controversy in San Diego, California right now. Um, They have 165 medical dispensaries, but the city of San Diego has uh, stated that all of them need to be closed for a year or two, and then they can operate only if they satisfy certain regulations. Of course, the regulations are so impossible to satisfy, for all intents and purposes, the dispensaries are probably, or at least most of them, great majority will never be able to open again. 
So the the counties and the cities are creative in coming up with ways to get around the intent of the proposition that was passed in 1996. Good. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's interesting because we also talked about the differences, like sometimes, there's, uh, you know, I shouldn't say this maybe, but like a lot of younger people and stuff, they it's very easy to get a medical marijuana card. You can go in and say, I have a headache or I lost my appetite or, you know, uh, my nose hurts. And, you know, they just write out the scripts. Um, so um, in terms of the strict strictness of the medical thing, um, there is a lot of gray areas. Now, I do know a number of people who really do uh, use it in a legitimate way. Uh, I know someone who is a retired uh, fire chief, and he has a back injury. And he says it's the only thing that works for him. And a lot of people don't want to take painkillers uh, because they just get too doped up and stupid. Uh, you know, it's arguable whether you get doped up and stupid on smoking dope, but, yeah. um, you know, uh, it's different than taking something like Thorazine or, you know, or morphine or whatever uh, for a painkiller. So right. there, there really is some legitimacy to the issue, um, and, and there are a lot of gray areas. Um, also, uh, San Diego is known to be somewhat of a conservative stronghold. Um but there, there has been a lot of civil disobedience around it. You mentioned a case in Oceanside? Uh, uh, yes. Which is just north of San Diego? Yes. Uh, uh, actually, there's two uh, medical dispensary owners in Oceanside uh, who, I would call it civil disobedience. What, what happened was Oceanside was one of those cities that just outright banned medical dispensaries. And uh, in effect... What these uh, owners have done is they just reopened. They just reopened knowing that there's going to be a court case involving uh, uh, their uh, their use. They uh, they were they were told they had to disband and, and that they would have to then apply for what's called a conditional use permit. Uh, but then that would allow the city to issue regulations that. Uh, would make it virtually impossible for them to to satisfy. So rather than wait around for that process, they, uh, what I consider just civil disobedience, they just opened up and are forcing the, the legal action right now. Okay, good. Yeah, there's been a lot of that type of civil disobedience, and you may know of some of this, but up in Northern California where there's a lot of growing going on, um, they had been raiding some... Um, medical marijuana dispensaries and some of the people knew that they were going to get raided and they got people to volunteer like people who are really like terminally ill cancer patients and people in wheelchairs so they went in to make this big bust and they're busting you know half dead semi crippled people in wheelchairs which, really yeah didn't make them look very good but uh it was really smart on that part with the activism um let, let's go back again this is sort of hitting the other question about busts from a slightly different angle. Uh, I'd like to maybe give a little take on um, being in your car, and and this is probably a general question for more of a national type thing, where you're in your car and, and, you know, you're driving in your car, maybe you're smoking some weed and you roll down the window or something and some smoke goes out and then uh, the cops pull you over. And so there's there's the, the whole possession issue and the possibility of driving under the influence kind of a thing. Could you maybe just talk about that a little bit? Sure. I first of all, I, there's a big difference when it comes to laws on search and seizure when people are driving as opposed to almost any other circumstance. Um, when you're driving, uh, it is uh, w- you know, by a license from the state, and this would be probably any jurisdiction in the world, where the privilege of driving is... Uh, means that you have to cooperate when a police officer pulls you over. Um, You don't, in in almost any other circumstance, you don't ever have to cooperate with a police officer. That's the big difference. So when you're in your car and you're driving, here's the things you have to do. If a police officer pulls you over, you have to show him your identification. uh, And then you, uh, if he asks you to step out or orders you to step out of your car, you have to comply. 
you don't have to do anything else. And my advice legally as an attorney is that you should not do anything else. In other words, when the officer starts asking you questions as to how much you've had to drink or whether you've been using pot uh, or uh, where you've come from or where you're headed to, you should say to the police officer, I respectfully decline to answer. You don't have to answer those questions because any time an officer asks you any question, is it is with bad intentions. The intention is to garner information from you that will justify more of a detention and possibly an arrest. So when you're pulled over and you've been smoking marijuana um, and the officer asks you, well, Where's the marijuana or have you been smoking it? Just simply say, I'm not going to answer that question. You don't have to answer that question. Okay, now, it's amazing the noses that police officers have. Um, They will always put in their report, I could smell marijuana on this person. I could smell it from X number of feet away. Um, uh, I don't know many people who have the acute sense of smell that police officers have. I... Uh, as they document in their reports, but he'll let him say whatever he wants to say. Don't add to the problem by making any comments to him. Good. Also, if I'm uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, I, I think, and, and again, you, you can correct me here, okay. that they may ask to search your vehicle, and can you decline that, or how's that go? Well, that's a really good question, Matt. Uh, First of all, uh, an officer to search your vehicle uh, must have what's called probable cause or else the only way you can search your vehicle is to give your consent. Uh, My recommendation is never under any circumstance give your consent to a police officer to search your car, your person, your home, or anything because you're in you're asking for it. I mean, uh, I mean, there have been cases even when cops plant evidence on people. So if you don't give your consent, they won't have the opportunity to do that. Um, whether they have a, a lot of times, what an officer will do is simply start searching your vehicle. Okay, and what you must do is articulate you do not have the right to do that, because uh, what they will testify in court to is that. Well, by your gesture or by a grimace, you gave a nonverbal consent to search. And every judge that I know who are all on the side of law enforcement, even though the officer is clearly lying about you giving uh, consent, the judge will say, since you didn't object in an articulable way, that consent was given. So consent can be given non-verbally. So to counteract that, you have to verbally say, anytime an officer starts to search you or your car um, or your home, sir, you do not have consent. That is something you should say almost anytime you interact with the police. You know, something uh, you just said I think is important. You said, sir, you do not have consent. And the, the the real point there is even though you're telling them no and not going along with them always do be polite because if you piss them off they're going to want to make an example of you well that's true and also you know let's keep this in mind you know police officers are not you know uh, evil warlocks uh, they are human beings and they're doing a difficult job and you know a lot of most of what they do is necessary to possibly help you or me when we're in a jam so they're not they're not an enemy uh, and they shouldn't be looked upon that way treat them you treat them with respect and maybe they'll treat you with respect keep this in mind uh, even though um, you do not have to ever talk to a cop or give consent uh, under any circumstance really they have the right to ask those questions and to probe as much as possible. And if, in, in other words, they may ask you questions that they don't have a right to ask you, but, but that is okay. That's part of their job. It's up to you to know what your rights are. 
So, you know, sometimes you need to tell the officer, sir, I don't have to answer those questions. No, sir, I'm not going to allow you to, uh, you know, you don't have consent to uh, search my car. And then when they go ahead and do it anyway, uh, if, if you're one of those rare people who uh, is lucky enough to get a good lawyer, I, that person will be able to raise a motion saying that the cop violated your rights. Good. Thank you. Um, so we had also been talking about um, different quantities. Like you were saying that you can have a certain amount, and if you even give it to people, it could be a felony. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the quantities and, the, and sort of how it scales into terms of prosecution? Uh, yes, just a little bit. Uh, the, for, like in California and a lot of other jurisdictions, if you have less than an ounce of marijuana, this is just in your possession, then it's basically treated like an infraction, which is even less than a misdemeanor. The criminal standards are the highest form of crime is a felony. That's where you can go to prison for more than a year. A misdemeanor is a crime for which you will do up to, but no more than a year in jail. And then an infraction is like a speeding ticket. So uh, if you have less than an ounce of marijuana, a possession of it, then it's considered to be, um, you know, the lowest form of criminal uh, action that there can be. But there's a lot of nuances in the law. Um, uh, major felonies are considered transporting uh, marijuana or possession of marijuana for sale. Okay, uh, usually those involve a bigger amount, but technically, if you have less than an ounce of marijuana and you give it to somebody uh, or sell it to somebody, you know, if you sell it to, to somebody for sure, you could be prosecuted for a felony. And under that same law, even if you give it to somebody, you can be prosecuted as a felony even though uh, if you just possess it for yourself and use it for yourself, there's virtually no prosecution at all. Good. Thank you. Um, let's go back to the bus thing for, again, for a little bit. Um, I'm thinking, okay, like in the case of this person that I knew, they ended up in the end well, with a plea bargain. Um, they got fined. It cost them like $10,000, I think, for the lawyer. They got fined, I think, $2,000. It was a misdemeanor. They got two years probation, two years of community service. Now, though they were in the right by terms of California laws, they didn't have the money to fight. And, you know, they lost, they probably lost $100,000 in what they'd invested in time and money and everything else uh, for, for their crop. So um, maybe we could just talk a little bit about, okay, you got busted. Uh, you get thrown in the slam. You get bailed out, and then you're going to go to court. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what happens there, kind of, and, and what to expect and not to expect, and, you know, a little bit about that. Uh, yes, you mean as far as the cart process? Yeah, yeah. What, what can you expect? I mean, you know, okay. you're not going to just walk away if you get in that level of trouble. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, first of all, most people cannot afford a criminal defense attorney. Uh, they're, uh, an attorney might charge as much as three, $400 an hour, or want a huge retainer. You mentioned 10000 with your friend. Uh, a lot of times it's even more than that. And usually wh whatever money they get up front, there's no guarantee that they're going to take the case to trial. That might be money where they're just saying to you, we'll try and get you as good a plea bargain as possible. Well, unfortunately, probably more than 95% of consumers out there don't have the money to hire a lawyer, so they have to go with what's called a public defender. A uh, public defender is an attorney who works for a county office, uh, usually called the public defender's office. And this can be all over the place. In every other country, for instance, they might have similar type of uh, organizations. But let's get real about what happens. The public defender attorney uh, has no interest in putting a lot of time and effort into your case, and they're going to try and have you plead guilty to something, probably something pretty serious, as soon as possible in the in the process. So that may occur at the first court date, which is called an arraignment. 
arraignments where you uh, plead either guilty or not guilty. Um, and it's amazing the pressure that is put on most consumers when they go to arraignment. Uh, uh, they have two different arraignment courts. One is called misdemeanor arraignment, and one is called felony arraignment. It doesn't matter which one. It's amazing how many people plead guilty to uh, a crime, even the chief crime charged, right there on that first date. Which, And that is only because of the pressure put on them by public defender attorneys. So if for some reason you could sustain that assault uh, by the attorney to plead guilty... Your next court date is the uh, pre-trial or readiness uh, court date, and that's when the judges put pressure on uh, people to take a plea bargain. So what you really have is this mounting pressure, kind of like uh, uh, lava or um, what's it called, magna, magma? Yeah. That, that's building in a vo- volcano about to erupt. Uh, you're getting all these indicia about why you should plead guilty and probably nobody will be really looking into the case on your behalf unless you're extremely wealthy uh, you're not going to have access to an attorney who is going to spend a lot of time on it or a private investigator who's going to really be looking into it Uh, so the odds are that like your friend who spent ten thousand dollars on an attorney but basically ended up uh, getting a pretty bad bargain out of it when and losing everything uh, that's the conundrum that uh, people are in our legal system right now. Good, and and, and uh, I believe I'm correct. In fact, I know, I know I am. When they really are pushing for the plea bargain, they want to keep you from going to court because it's time and money and and all that. And the legal system is really backed up, like log jammed seriously. Well, yeah, I mean, I you know the. Um, uh, like, let me give you one example in one area of law, and this is just uh, typical in a lot of areas of law, but take drunk driving cases. Okay, a drunk driving case uh, uh, is um, so regulated by the state that once it's filed by the prosecutor, the prosecutor doesn't even have a right uh, except when there is clear factual evidence to ever give a lesser charge. So, in other words, they, they can't plea bargain it down to a speeding ticket or something like that. So, so usually once the charge of a DUI occurs, there is very little a defense attorney can do unless you go to trial. But what happens? In 99% of the cases, more than that, the defense attorney will take a lot of money from someone, possibly as much as $10,000 for their first DUI, and... All they'll end up doing is convincing the person to plead guilty. Uh, so the, the sad fact is if that person were to represent himself and not hire a lawyer, he would get the same deal, but the fines might be less because a judge has a right to give lesser fines if he perceives that someone is poor. So if you have the attorney, you're not going to get the lesser fines because the judge perceives you're not poor. So if you represent yourself, you're going to get a better deal. I mean, representing yourself as far as pleading guilty, you'll get a better deal than if you paid $10,000 to a lawyer. Wow. That's a fascinating conundrum, <laughs> which I hope none of us ever end up in. Um you know, we were talking earlier, and you had mentioned, uh, I, I know you'll word it better than me, but you had talked about how the difference between civil and criminal cases, one, they want you in and out, one, they want to, they love to have you there at the criminal, I think, and they want you out as a civil. Is that how it goes? You want, you want to rephrase that? Sure. I, I think you said it pretty well. I mean, the, uh, the problem in our society is that uh, civil cases are where, you know, that's like suing or divorce court or unlawful detainer or, you know, a state trust, all this. Uh, it's anything that's not criminal, really. Uh, but the the courts don't really want John Q. Citizen, the consumer, to occupy their time with uh, suing or going to court. The, the judges have a huge caseload, and they want to get rid of their caseload. So they come up with all these alternative ways to get the case uh, 
resolved. Uh, they actually call it alternative dispute resolution. And that means if you file a lawsuit or your attorney does, uh, the courts are going to force you to either mediate the case where you like go to an attorney who tries to get you to agree or arbitrate a case where you go to an arbitrator who has the right to make a final decision, in which case it is no longer part of the court system, or uh, you have to go to a settlement conference with a judge. Well, the, the point is, in civil cases, it's clear that the system does not want you to be involved. They want to get rid of you as soon as possible. Now, in the criminal system, no, that it would be nice if they want to uh, uh, not let you participate in the criminal system, but that's not the way it happens. They are more than willing to let you participate, but once you are involved in the system, they still want to get rid of you as fast as possible. And unfortunately, and this is just my opinion, if it comes down to your civil rights versus the convenience of the courts, uh, the convenience of the courts is going to win out. Yeah, I guess once you're in their hands, you really are at their mercy. You are. You get caught in the cogs of the wheel of justice, and they can crush you, especially if you're, as you say, John Q. Citizen, uh, where you don't have a lot of resources. That's true. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, we didn't really talk about this, and it's probably not as as different, but um, maybe you could just give a few thoughts on, uh, aside from marijuana, there's... um, there's you know there's psychedelic drugs like mushrooms and LSD and things like that and then there are some that are in a gray area of what they call designer drugs um, and I imagine there are different penalties for different things but in terms of uh, prosecution um, in court the rules really would be the same in terms of keeping your mouth shut and um, not really giving up anything, uh, but possibly because of a substance being scheduled in a different way, it could be higher uh, penalties? Uh, that's true. I mean, uh, if you go to the penal codes, there are just many laws, pages and pages of laws uh, detailing uh, these various drugs. Whenever I have a drug case, I actually have to go look up that particular section just to see how all the uh, laws affect that particular drug, but uh, you're absolutely right. It, it's not going to do a person any good to try and explain himself to the police. Um, uh, for instance, you might be interested uh, in in knowing that when the police come to your house, uh, you know, with the intention of searching your house and finding the marijuana. Let's say you have marijuana in your basement or in your garage. Well, when the police knock on the door, uh, you don't even have to open the door. You know, unless they have a warrant, uh, they will not be able to search your house. Now, you might say, well, why don't they just go ahead and get a warrant? Uh, Well, a warrant is issued by a judge, and a judge is not going to issue a warrant unless he has probable cause, some facts to already justify that. So it might be the police are frustrated they may not have the justification before they're pounding on your door and demanding that you open it uh, because if they don't have the justification, a judge isn't going to give them the warrant. So the only way, and this is how it usually happens, is that they end up arresting you, is that you go ahead and let them in. You let them in and you let them search and then they see the drugs and then uh, next thing you know, you're you're part of a criminal you know, prosecution. So it's really important that you assert all your rights. Um, I, basically, if you even if you open the door, a police officer has a right to seize anything that is in what's called plain view of where he is. Now, a lot of times these guys cheat. Uh, once they get in there, um, they may be walking around and go around a corner and, and say, well, it was in plain view. But the bottom line is that can never happen if you don't let them in. You have to really keep your composure when you're dealing with the police. Um, you, ha- you have to assert your rights with, um, you know, caution. You don't want to be yelling and screaming at them. You don't want to give them a chance to think that you have a gun. 
Um, most of the people who end up getting shot by the police actually don't have a gun. But the police get away with it because they say, well, it looked like he was going for a gun. Uh, so, you know, just for self-preservation, keep your cool when a cop tries to enter your house. Good. Yeah, that brings up another little scenario maybe we can touch on here. Uh, kind of bounces between state and federal laws and um, crossing state lines and, and, and things like that. Um, I'll give you a little scenario that happened okay. to someone I know, and but you know you can elaborate on it. Um, some years back, someone I know, they were a dentist and they were quite successful, and they liked cannabis. And somebody mailed them some cannabis, and they got it and they went, "Oh, great!" And they opened it up and, "Oh, this is great!" And they twisted up a spliff and they fired it up, started to smoke it, and there was a knock on the door. And bang, in came the feds, and he got busted and, you know, got prosecuted pretty harshly. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? You know, like, the U.S. mail's not safe. No. I, it's interesting that uh, sounds like there was, was there some kind of setup involved? I, I think that, um, as it turned out, they found it. They sniffed it out, I think, with dogs when it came through their post office. I see. And then they set it all up, and then they just went through with the regular delivery and... Figured, okay, 20 minutes has passed. Guy's probably smoking now and nailed him. Well, uh, were they smoking it uh, at the time uh, that the uh, cops was in? The reason I say that is this goes along with much of what we've been talking about. Okay, they're obviously in a dubious situation at that time. The cops have busted in. Well, first of all, do the cops have a warrant? Okay, that's a big issue. Uh, uh, If the cops don't have a warrant then probably their attorney would be able to get them off on that right there. Because when the, when the police have information that justifies getting a warrant, then they must go get the warrant. Just because they have the justification for the warrant, they don't have a justification to go in unless they actually have the warrant. So um, from my experience, a lot of times the police are lazy. They don't get the warrant. So there would be a real good... Uh, way for them to maybe, um, you know, have the charges dismissed on a technicality. Uh, secondly, okay, from what you told me, when the cops bust in, if they don't say anything to the police, well, how's there any evidence that they've done anything wrong? In other words, if I send, you know, a kilo of marijuana in the mail to you, Matt, um, who's to say that you even know what's in it? So when you open it up, have you committed a crime? You had no criminal intent. So they would have that going for themselves unless they opened their mouths and blabbed and talked with the police. Probably in that scenario, they admitted that they knew what it was and that it was sent to them, in which case they're probably going to go to jail. I have to comment on an interesting choice of words you used. You said dubious. So it was a dubious <laughs> situation because uh, he, the pun was not intended. Yeah, I know, but I don't, I don't miss the puns. <laughs> he uh, he had smoked, and then uh, if I remember correctly, he put it out, but they probably smelled it, and now uh, they were feds, mm-hmm. and they were they were tied in with the postal inspector. Right. So I guess um, is it fair to say? Is it correct to say that anytime you have something to do with an illicit substance and you cross a state line, does that make it federal or is it still a state thing? I, you know, it depends on the law. I don't know all the particulars of all these laws. There are expert criminal defense attorneys who know that better than I do. Um, It certainly is not a good idea to be caught doing anything across state lines because it does invoke the federal jurisdiction. And, and yeah, and that's a good question. Um, from my experience, the federal jurisdiction is pretty much uh, like uh, being in the Klingon world. Uh, the laws are just uh, so uh, onerous, uh, you know. Draconian. Draconian. Draconian to the max. Uh, not that, you know, the states are any better in a sense, but federal law has it has its own... Uh, you know, like 20-year sentences for, you know, basic minor drug use, depending on what 
uh, drug they're out to get. I remember this. The the courts, a lot of times when they're prosecuting in a draconian way, it's only because the legislators have passed laws that mandate that they treat it that way. Sometimes the legislators have made it impossible for judges to be fair. Uh, I know of uh, several federal judges who've actually quit the bench because they were not allowed to be fair. They they felt they were just uh, you know an auto, part of an automated system. So you know your viewers out there should keep this in mind uh, that. Uh, they have the right to vote out legislators who are, are basically overly zealous when it comes to law and order because a lot of these laws that are that are making the judges seem to be unfair are really passed by your legislators uh, and, the, and, it, and the judges and the prosecutors and even the defense lawyers, there's not a lot they can do. That's interesting. You know, I want to kind of reiterate that um, Eric's not only talking about, you know, uh, advice as a lawyer, but he really is an insider into the legal system, and um, he's seen it from every way. You know, he's, he's worked on uh, a number of murder cases. I, I, I went on a few investigations with him, uh, which was fascinating. Uh, you know, being a writer and just being who I am, wanting to explore the outer limits. We also talked a little bit about uh, the drug war and sort of the senselessness of it and the inevitability of some things. you want to really give us some of your thoughts on that, what we were talking about earlier? Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, regardless of your politics uh, regarding drugs being good or bad or the enforcement good or bad, it seems to me the most common sense uh, factor is this. There are 20,000 criminal cartels in America. That's 20,000. Wow. If uh, some of them, like the Crips, and you know, may have thousands of members in each, each one, but we're talking about 20,000 documented criminal cartels in America. That, that breaks down to you know, one for every 15,000 people. If there's just 100 uh, members in each criminal cartel, that that shows a vast array of uh, influence over John Q. Citizen, and it's getting worse. And it's that kind of problem that is leading to anarchy in some countries like Colombia, Mexico, and many other countries in the world, actually. So um, you have to figure that of those 20,000 criminal cartels, almost all of them are sustained in some way because of money made from selling drugs. That's the main way that uh, criminals are able to uh, uh, stay in business and feed themselves. Well, if for the most part drugs were legal, then they wouldn't have any basis for their uh, business. And I'm sure that many of those 20,000 criminal cartels would uh, disappear. Good, thank you. Um, there's also, uh, I've done some research, and also the drug war is an industry in and of itself, um, just kind of like the cancer industry, mm-hmm. so to speak. So there's a lot of funding that these departments get that um, they have to submit their budget every year and buy their new flak jackets and their super Gucci RVs and their, you know, Ricky Ranger radio gun sights and whatever the hell they got. True. So there's there's a lot of uh, support for keeping that funding coming. So a lot of that also drives the drug war from the other side. You know, that's a really good point, Matt. Uh, you know, also, let's not forget the role of the pharmaceutical companies in all of this. I, you know, I don't, I don't know uh, much about marijuana. Uh, I have a lung condition. I actually can't inhale. I'm the only person on this planet who actually understood what Bill Clinton was saying when he <laughs> said he could not, he did not inhale. Uh, even so, uh, the um, the pharmaceuticals uh, are really going to be hurt if it's a fact that marijuana really does 
have some healing properties to people, like especially when they have cancer and uh, many other ailments. And if marijuana does work, which I don't know because I don't use it myself, but I've heard from many credible people, including doctors, that it's that it is really um, a good thing from what I've heard. Then you have to question who is behind all of the uh, oppositions to the laws that would allow something like a marijuana dispensary or you know medical marijuana use and I suspect it's just common sense that the pharmaceutical companies who are extremely powerful are behind all this and that they want marijuana to be illegal so that people will have to buy their uh, drugs many of which are unproven and usually turn out to be devastating as far as their side effects. I mean, there's no evidence that marijuana is worse for you than at least the drugs that they're peddling to people. So, you know, I think a lot of the drug war has is really, you know, a function of big business prevailing in this country. I could go out for hours on a tirade against the pharmaceuticals. That's a big sore spot with me. I mean... You know, they, they are constantly trying to limit and prosecute um, natural foods and natural supplements that have known to have healing qualities, some of them more often than not better than um, the pharmaceuticals. They work with the body as opposed to against it. They don't have side effects. They're a natural healing thing. And when you even think about uh, marijuana, it's a, it's a plant. You know, God put this plant out there and somebody smoked it. Some people eat it. Uh, it has had good qualities. I've heard of people making a salve with it that was good for rheumatism. Really? Yeah. Um, there are no, you know a number of qualities. So, God, I can really go off. I won't because I'll probably get in trouble and, and get arrested or something for <laughs> how much those bastards drive me nuts. But I do want to say um, to reinforce what Eric just said, and that is... Uh, the case of uh, MDMA, ecstasy, I know a number of researchers, and they've done a lot of research with it, uh, sanctioned by the government and other governments. A lot has been done in Israel. And a lot has been done, particularly with ecstasy, with post-traumatic stress disorder. So some interesting things about ecstasy, which I, uh, I'm i pretty sure I'm correct here. Um, it was originally discovered in something like I think 1865, so it's not patentable. Another thing is um, there have been people who have had post-traumatic stress disorder and other traumas that did ecstasy maybe twice, three times with a good psychotherapist and were cured of their conditions. Well, you think the pharmaceutical companies want something that you only need to take two or three times and you're cured? Or would they rather have an automatic debit from your checking account so they can get your monthly supply of Paxil or Prozac or whatever the hell they got, Zoloft, you know? So there is a lot of resistance behind uh, common sense driven by, basically by greed and profit. And then they do things with some of their drugs. I won't get off track here, but I just said his last part. Well, actually, it. I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have had different drugs Okay, there, and I, I can't remember one off the top of my head because my mind is spinning because this is really a hot spot with me. But um, they've had different drugs where they put them out there and they weren't thoroughly tested and they'd make $2 billion. And 25 people died and there's a class action suit and they lose and they have to pay $200 million. You think, wow, $200 million, well... $200 million out of $2 billion ain't nothing. Right? It's the price of doing business. It's, it's like paying for advertising. And that goes on with a number of different drugs. So um, they, are, they are behind a lot of bad stuff that's not being supported. But you know, I, I don't want to get off track. So um, I think we're going to wrap it up here in just a minute. Okay. Uh, maybe we'll give you a, a little final comment here in a second. But um, I want to reiterate that um, Eric's latest book is Lawyers Lie. And again, uh, if I was going to subtitle it, I might subtitle it uh, 
an insider's guide to the maze of the legal system because you can look up different chapters for different things. There's uh, chapters on um, even becoming an attorney, uh, expectations in the social contract. Uh, there's a chapter, so you want to sue someone. It gets into all the details. Uh, can you afford to sue someone? Um, judgment proof, puni punitive damages, all these situations that sometimes we uh, unfortunately find ourselves into. Uh, he even gets into estate trusts, medical malpractice, a bunch of them. Um, so it is available at www.ericdhart.com, ericdhart.com, as uh, a paperback book, or as we say in the writing industry, a tree book. And it's also available on Amazon uh, as an ebook under Kindle. And uh, I know Lorenzo will post this stuff also on the uh, the page. So maybe uh, if you have any uh, final thoughts for our listeners that you may want to kind of sum up or kind of put a wrap on here. Well, I think you covered uh, you know uh, the subject matter that we had talked about beforehand. I might say about that book, in case people are confused, that book is uh, only about the civil side of things, you know, the civil justice system. Uh, I have another book that I'm finishing up right now. It's called uh, Lawyers Lie Yet Again, and it's it's about the criminal justice debacle. So that has to do with a lot of the subjects we were talking about today. The book that's out right now is has to do with, like, when you want to sue somebody, uh, that type of thing. Yeah, c civil law. Civil law. Yeah, okay. And then uh, I have one last question for you, which I suspect you may know the answer. Okay. Um, what do you call a busload of lawyers going over a cliff with an empty seat? I don't know. You have to tell me that, Matt. It's a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's it, folks. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And uh, Please check in and uh, help out the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, thank you to Lorenzo and everybody else out there. It's been great uh, podcasting, and hopefully we'll do a few more like this. Okay, this is Mateo and Eric Hart signing off. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, since we're telling lawyer jokes, here's mine. What do you call 10,000 lawyers on the bottom of the ocean? A good start. <laughs> Actually, that's not the best one I've heard, but uh, it's the only one I can remember. And you'd probably be surprised at how popular lawyer jokes are with lawyers. Uh, with few exceptions, almost every lawyer I know has told me that I was smart to get out of that field. Now, I know that there are a number of law school students who are also fellow saloners, as well as several lawyers, and I hope I'm not discouraging you, because I still think that law school is uh, by far one of the best ways there is to sharpen your critical thinking and arguing skills. To tell the truth, I really enjoyed law school, and uh, once I got into practice, I also loved doing research for appellate cases and writing appellate briefs. But, unfortunately, I never got to do much of that kind of work. Uh, what I really hadn't thought through very well was uh, what being a lawyer means on a day-to-day -day basis. You see, uh, during my undergraduate years, I had a summer job where I taught sailing at the Houston Yacht Club. And uh, there I got to know a lot of the prominent judges and lawyers in Houston. And they were really a great bunch of people, and I just had a blast hanging out with them during the summer. So... That was my main reason for wanting to be a lawyer, uh, drinking and sailing. <laughs> what I hadn't taken into account was the fact that the only people who need a lawyer are people who have problems, uh, usually big problems, and <laughs> the fact was I had enough problems of my own, but now I had to help a whole raft of people who had taken years to create some kind of a mess that they expected me to clear up for them in a day or two. So, after getting calls at home and in the middle of the night from worried clients, and after the second guy pulled a gun on my partner, I decided that I should get out while the getting was still good. And uh, believe me, it was uh, one of the best decisions I ever made. And listening to Eric just now very clearly reminded me how depressed I was during the years that I practiced law, mainly because of the injustice I saw in the system each day and how unreasonable even highly intelligent people can be when their emotions take hold. The bottom line was that I simply didn't have the 
right makeup to be a lawyer, which uh, I guess is why I have such great respect for women and men like Eric who feel the same way I did, but who are still willing to go out there every day and uh, stand up for those of us who have somehow become entangled in the system. I hope it never happens to you, but should you ever run afoul of the law, I hope you remember to keep your mouth shut. It isn't easy, uh, particularly if a cop is yelling at you and threatening you, but it's a right you have in this country, and you should never let it be waived. And in fairness, uh, let me just put in a good word for the women and men who are actually uh, in the law enforcement business. I wouldn't want their jobs, would you? But without them, we'd all be living in a significantly more dangerous world. You know, remember, law enforcements have to deal on a daily basis with some of the worst elements of our societies. Now, they may not always be fair, and they may not always be nice, and they usually don't know a thing about you. So, be sure to show them your best side. You can be polite, and you can be courteous, but you can also be firm about not giving up your right to remain silent, and your right to uh, not have your car or home searched without a warrant. You know, those are your rights, but if you are polite and exercising them, then there's really a much better chance that things are going to work out in your favor. Now, before I close, I would also like to put in a plug for Matt Palomary, who took the time to record this interview for us. As you know, Matt's main source of income is from his writing, and if you haven't read Spirit Matters, his autobiography, well, you don't know what you're missing, because it reads more like a novel than a nonfiction book. And as far as an introduction to shamanism, well, uh, I don't think you can beat Matt's novel, Land Without Evil. It's a book that you can give to a teenager without worry because there's no mention at all of drugs, which is why it's taught in some schools. But mainly it's uh, written for adults who are interested in learning more about the conflicts between the Westerners who colonized the Americas and the indigenous people who had built thriving civilizations for millennia before the arrival of the Jesuits. It's, uh, it's really a great tale and a page-turner that's uh, now also available in Kindle. Well, that'll do it for now, but uh, be sure to tune in next week. Uh, hopefully it'll be early in the week because I've got another interview to play for you, and it will feature Dennis McKenna here in the salon for the first time. And uh, so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, you can uh, hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>